Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I'm talking to Sebastian Buck, co-founder and strategic lead at Enzo, one of the world's leading social impact agencies. Sebastian shares with me his take on the evolution towards purpose in business, as well as his insights as to the huge potential for sport to become more purposeful in how it operates and thereby truly harness its potential. Sebastian, um, great to have you with us today. Um, you've always been someone that I've looked up to and admired in terms of the role that you've played in leading this transition to purpose that's underway. Uh, and I thought it'd be really interesting just to, to share your story with everybody. So take us right back to the beginning, um, you know, when you first started working in business. Um, and if you wouldn't mind sharing with us how, how your work life started for you, um, and then we can kind of take that on a journey to where we are today. How does that sound? Sounds great. And uh, thank you for inviting me, Neil. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, yeah, my context is I grew up in southern England in a pretty rural environment. Uh, but I grew up the son of a small business owner. And my dad instilled in me two things. One is a fierce sense of optimism. And the other is a sense that business is where things can get created and built that really add value to the world. So I was pretty clear I was going to be in business. Um, I studied law and corporate finance, uh, economics. Uh, I got into strategy consulting as the first part of my career. And that took me around a bunch of different industries from media to entertainment, to technology, telco. And I got to see a lot of companies uh, look to enter new markets, launch new things, wrestle with transitions in particular from one, one world to another. And uh, that was fascinating to me. I enjoyed it thoroughly. But when I uh, got to LA from England, um, which that journey, the consulting journey had led me on, I ran into Good Magazine. And Good Magazine was covering social innovation in a way that I had never resonated with it before. It was covering things in 2006, 2007, like uh, Kiva and Kickstarter and Donors Choose and Khan Academy, Airbnb. These things that were, I thought, straddling the boundary between for-profit and non-profit uh, and uh, sort of social contribution in, in a way that it just hadn't sort of resonated with me before. I'd always thought about charities as very dusty, backwater things, uh, not a lot of innovation, not a lot of excitement. And what Good Magazine really brought forward for me was a level of optimism and energy around aligning business behind uh, social issues. And, and if I can just stop you a second there, do you think that um, was this drive coming from the nonprofit sector wanting to be more uh, embrace the markets and be more businesslike in terms of how it went about doing its work or, or did it come from the corporate sector? What was driving the change or the, the kind of evolution at that stage? I think there were a couple of motivations. I think the, the predominant motivation of the 
organizations that I really looked up to was an innate motivation from the leaders of those organizations. So, you know, if you look at Sal Khan, for instance, you know, he was a hedge fund analyst who started helping his daughter, oh, sorry, not his daughter, his uh, niece learn. And he started making YouTube videos so that she could replay the lesson he was teaching her first on, on the phone. Um, and then he found that there was real utility in those YouTube videos and other people were watching them. And then Bill Gates started watching them with his, his, uh, his kids and he built Khan Academy. And so it was coming from, I think, an innate motivation from him. I think the same is, is true of, of a lot of those other founders, if you look at some of those early organizations. But I do think around that time, around 2000 and, and shortly after that, there was the Battle of Seattle, the WTO protests, and bigger companies started looking at how do we react to this activist impulse? And that led to a lot of corporate social responsibility teams, corporate foundations, which in some cases did good work, but I think they were uh, often put up as a fig leaf to the organization. They were at arm's length to the core business. Um, and so the investment in them was pretty finite. There was no way that they could really prove their, their success. You know, even if they did amazing things from a corporate foundation perspective, there was no way that they could uh, justify doubling the investment in the subsequent year. Um, so there were, there were sort of different classes of social impact agenda at that time. Some were, you know, the sort of fig leaf corporate initiatives and some were really exciting. I think innovation is coming from a founder's intent. So that was, what period was that you said, 2000, early 2000s? Well, the way I think of it is about 2000 to 2008 was that era. After Obama got elected and there was this surge of energy that was partly inspired by the depths of the recession. I think the depths of the recession caused a lot of people to reflect on the way we were heading in the world, the way people were living, the way companies were existing. And that reflection led to, I think, particularly a consumer-led impulse for more purposeful brands. And so it's no coincidence that shortly after that, uh, we worked on some initiatives, uh, for instance, the Pepsi Refresh Project and the Starbucks Create Jobs for USA initiative. These big brands getting involved in social impact initiatives. Um, and that was primarily coming from a consumer pressure. So it had become a marketing priority. CMOs were paying attention to purpose. Um, and I should mention that my journey had led me from admiring Good Magazine, I then joined it to help grow Good Magazine. And then in around 2008, nine, we started an agency spinoff from, from Good called Good Core. And that's how we were working on things like the Pepsi Refresh Project. But so in my mind, the second era of this shift in business was a consumer priority because, uh, because of the status of the world, particularly a younger consumer priority, a millennial priority, which made it a, a marketing priority. The third phase, which I think we've entered into just in the last couple of years, so 2017, 18 onwards, is actually even more exciting, which is 
companies are having to react to their employees who are demanding more purposeful business. And that means the pressure has shifted from an activist pressure in the early 2000s, which was an extrinsic pressure, to a consumer pressure in 2008 onwards, uh, which also was an extrinsic pressure, to the third wave is now an intrinsic pressure of employees demanding their companies live up to uh, higher ideals. And so you're seeing things like employee activism at Google, you're seeing a lot of uh, the best talent being quite discriminating about where they work and compelling their managers uh, to, to listen. So that's fascinating. <clears throat> so do you, um, and these, the previous two phases, they, they haven't stopped, have they? They've continued. So you've kind of got this additive effect that's starting to take place now. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I don't think, um, you know, CSR teams and, and corporate foundations are irrelevant now. And it's, um, you know, the second phase, it's, it's not irrelevant to think about marketing um, in, a, in a more purposeful way. I think this has just been a, a gradual expansion is the way I think of it. So from a, a singular team's agenda, like a foundation team's agenda to the foundation team plus the marketing team. And now I think it's really a CEO priority and everybody who, who is in the C-suite now has to think about what is the purpose of the organization? How is that motivating our people every day? How is it motivating customers? How is it motivating the stakeholders around us? Um, our investors, um, our, uh, the civic leaders who, who impact us, et cetera. Um, you know, I think if you look at, for instance, what Larry Fink is doing at BlackRock, you know, the largest investor in the world controlling, what is it, six or seven trillion dollars of assets. He's, he's threatening the CEOs of their in, investees that they will disinvest if the company cannot prove to BlackRock um, how they contribute to the world. And so now, you know, that is a CEO agenda when you've got your, your investors making that kind of case. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that to me is definitely not a, it's not that it has, it's no longer a marketing priority. It's just that it's marketing priority and an HR priority and an operation right, right. and a supply chain priority, et cetera. So through each wave we've seen, I mean, if we use this, the word purpose to describe what we're talking about, we've seen purpose move from the fringes to the center of the organization and become a right. key organizing principle for how the business operates. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I cringed the other day. I saw a, a deck from a, a, a leading global brand that was all excited about this new purpose marketing exercise they were going to be starting mm -hmm. because Gen Z responds best to companies that do purpose. So that, I mean, that, that, that kind of positioning would indicate that they don't really understand what this opportunity is or what the shift is, wouldn't it? It does. And I think sadly, you know, that, that motivation is quite prevalent right now and purpose marketing is becoming quite a buzz term and that of course as someone who's trying to push this agenda is in some ways gratifying but there's also a risk to it that some companies like the one you just described approach it quite cynically like this is the latest spin we have to put on our communications and that's all it is it's still just skin deep it's just a veneer around uh, same old, same old business. 
I think the real leaders, the real people who are advancing the state of the art of business are actually thinking about it, as you described, as it's now at the center of their intention. The Paul Polmans of the world who, you know, he really modernized Unilever during his status as CEO. Um, you know, they were thinking about it quite deeply. Like, how do we actually make this fundamental to our supply chains, to our product formulations, to our packaging agenda, to our distribution, and to our marketing? And I think that's kind of the way people need to, to think about this transition. Mm. Partly, you know, not, not only because consumers can now see through the, the skin deep stuff and are becoming increasingly savvy at that, it's also because employees know <laughs> employees know the the reality of of uh, you know how good or bad and how committed a company is and what we're hearing increasingly from our clients is that the motivation for working with a firm like enso is uh, is is not just a marketing motivation but it's because they are struggling to hire and retain the best people Mm -hmm. And uh, and so the internal authenticity of living up to to some guiding values and and and, and a mission orientation is becoming, you know, this intrinsic motivation I described. Right. So, Sebastian, so when you think back, um, if you can take yourself back to, to the sort of early two thousands, when you were looking forward as to how this whole movement might evolve, did you think that we would end up where we are today as quickly as we have? or as slowly as we have? I mean, how, how have things evolved compared to how you thought they would? That's a wonderful question. It's a hard one to ask. I would be lying if I said I could <laughs> foresee the direction of the world. Um, you know, I, to, for some context, I grew up in Thatcherite Britain, was pretty convinced that um, Chicago School Economics was quote unquote right. <laughs> and I thought the trajectory of the world was, um, was one that was an inevitable march towards the sort of neoliberal agenda of you know, democratic norms and, um, and uh, economic progress. And, and uh, you know, I, I started to sort of smell the, the uh, the reality, you know, people like uh, Naomi Klein um, were really uh, powerful, I think, in waking me up to that um, back in sort of 2005, six, seven, I guess. Um, you know, Good Magazine, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, so I started to, to get that sense that the world was not heading in a great tra trajectory. I did not think the... Um, environmental and social norms would degrade as rapidly as they have. It, it didn't at that time seem as urgent to me uh, as it does now. Um, and so I would definitely describe like my own sort of awakening or transition through that period of time uh, as well. I, I definitely didn't have clarity of it, you know, back then. In terms of the business progression, um, in some ways I'm heartened that things are changing pretty fast you know when we were uh when we were starting out michael porter had just published or was about to publish the shared value article in Harvard business review uh, which got a lot of of uh, people talking about the idea of aligning business success with social impact 
Um, it was striking, particularly coming from him, because as the author of Porter's Five Forces, he had championed a conception of business that was very antagonistic. You, you have to sort of fight and beat your suppliers and get one over on your customers and get one over on your employees. And, you know, you, the, the, the concept of Porter's Five Forces was you are at tension with the world as a company. And so for him to then write shared value and the idea of actually finding alignment with those around you is pretty striking. I would say when that came out in 2008, nine, I thought the mainstream would shift fast and it did not. Uh, you know, the fact that the sort of purpose oriented business conversation now feels quite of the zeitgeist today is surprising in a way that it wasn't 10 years ago. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that it wasn't more popular 10 years ago because things felt pretty urgent 10 years ago. But I think what happened partly was the recession while heightening the values in consumers in many ways for companies that forced them to take a step back on their progressive agenda and they sort of retreated to safer, more traditional methodologies. Yeah. So it's taken a while to unwind that. Yeah. So we're sitting here today and the world is shutting down around us with the coronavirus yeah. um, taking hold. It's kind of like a replay of feels like 2008 all over again, just maybe a little bit more scary. Yeah. What do you uh, be interesting to, to hear what you think the impact of this experience will be on this shift of purpose? And, um, you know, do you think it's potentially could accelerate it? Do you think it's going to, again, um, take it off its rails? Or if, um, how do you see the next 10 years unfolding as a consequence of where we are? where we've got to and at this moment in time where things look very unsettled and uncertain. Yeah. So, you know, sitting here in mid March, you know, at the, at the, you know, who knows if this is the, the, uh, you know, where we are in the, in the cycle of the pandemic. Um, it's hard to say exactly how radically things are going to change. Um, it, I, I would say, you know, to your question, yeah, I, I think, any time of real stress causes people to reflect on what they're doing and uh, you know, are they spending their time how they want to spend their time? And um, you know, ultimately I would, you know, the optimist in me would like to believe that that reflection collectively can be a healthy one. That said, obviously we all have to get through some pretty tough times together. Um, but yeah, I, I would hope that, you know, as we come through this, the, the urgency around uh, playing a meaningful part in the world is heightened and that impacts people in their individual careers and how they work. Um, but then also that will ripple out to the companies that they're a part of and right. the communities that those companies are a part of. Yeah. And hopefully that one word you used in that, um, in that explanation together will also become something that people can relate to again. We seem to have lost connection with that concept of togetherness. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think, um, you know, and we're talking you know, partly in the context of sports today, and I, I think the togetherness is uh, the thing that has been so degraded over the past decades, and it's not just in social media and stuff. You know, I, I've always been really intrigued by Robert Putnam's work at Harvard, you know, his bowling alone 
book was like 30 plus years ago documenting the long-term declines in social interaction and uh you know those declines have only been exacerbated by technology in some ways so um yeah i think we need a bit of a radical reset on what togetherness means how that shows up in in in, in our lives every day um, you know i've been really interested in the last number of years in belonging and uh, the extent to which uh, we feel uh, a sense of connectedness with each other and with place and the extent to which that's degraded and how we might inter intervene in that. And I actually think that's a deep human yearning for belonging. We are social creatures and the extent to which we are not being served in belonging in the way that we want is, uh, is not just a social need. It's also, I think, a, a huge business opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of ironic that at this time of need where people could actually benefit from being able to come together sport is shut down around us i mean i think every just about every single um interaction with sport has been closed down whether it's professional leagues or even my son was supposed to be going on a rugby tour to portugal next week that's not happening mm. um I, I know that uh, you're also a passionate sports um fan and believe have very strong thoughts in terms of the role that sport could be playing in helping to build a more sustainable together in this future that's right. And, and, you know, to step, to step sort of back a bit, I think the, um, the interesting thing when I look at businesses that are in moments of epic transition, some businesses get too attached to their existing business model and see that their source of revenue today defines who they are and what they are. And so, for instance, you could look at the landline telecom business, you know, back in sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, some telecom companies looked at themselves as we are the people that string up the telephone wires and dig up the streets, put the copper wires in, and we charge a monthly fee for that wire, and we are a landline phone business. That's what we are. Those companies, by and large, either collapsed, disappeared, um, or uh, were acquired by more enlightened companies that thought of themselves as connectivity providers. And those connectivity providers mostly saw that they needed to invest in wireless telco and, uh, and, and, and more forward-looking forms of connectivity that ultimately became the big value drivers. So if you apply that analogy to sports, I, my perspective of sports is that too many sports companies, too many clubs, teams, leagues have thought of themselves in as defined by their existing business model and their existing revenue streams, meaning they are basically a TV-based audience business. They're an entertainment company. Um, they interact with people as pretty uh, latent fans or audience. Um, they're to be served content to in a unidirectional fashion. And they've got too attached to that business model such that they haven't really thought harder about what's the true essence of what they provide, um, which I think in, in, in um, a way is about togetherness, is about a sense of um, shared interest, shared values, shared uh, experience. And if they could think in that more elevated way, then they would embrace the business opportunities of today and the future, 
which also happen to be in alignment with deeper human needs. And so switching from thinking of people as audience, which is a very sort of passive mindset, you're sitting on your couch just consuming, to thinking of people as community, who are there to be, um, yes, entertained, but also part of something. They want to feel belonging, they want to feel uh, connected to their city, to other people, um, to a shared endeavor. Um, that I think opens massive business opportunities as well as social impact opportunities. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And it, 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 uh, it kind of distresses me, I'll be honest, in terms of how often, you know, when I ask leaders in sport what their purpose is, the kind of default answer is to win a Super Bowl or to win a championship mm. or to, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's very kind of functional in its approach. Um, they haven't yet sort of grasped the opportunity that exists to not only do what you describe, but also to use uh, their platform to make the world a better place in some shape or form. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my personal experience of sport, like let's say, you know, I'm a, I'm a big Southampton football club fan and um, you may know that Southampton has not won anything since 1976. Um, and sadly, I can't go every week anymore. I certainly I get up every morning and watch it, every Saturday and watch it. But, but, you know, there was a period of my life when I would take a two plus hour train ride each way from London down to Southampton uh, to watch the game on Saturday. And yes, winning was nice. Winning was, 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 was part of why I wanted to go. But I would say an even bigger thing was, you know, putting the shirts on with thousands of other people and singing the songs and going to the pub before and after. And, you know, that entire experience, that communal experience is something that, you know, touches humans, I think, deep, uh, deep inside in a much more uh, meaningful way than just, you know, the bragging rights of winning. Um, you know, obviously the endeavor is, is sort of partly about about winning, that is the shared journey you're all on. Um, but it's the shared journey that really matters more than the cup at the end. Um, Southampton hasn't won anything in my tenure of, <laughs> of, uh, of following them, but my life is much richer for, for having, having been part of the journey. And it's quite, I mean, the English football model is quite interesting because you know, most of those football clubs came were born out of the community. They weren't born by some businessman saying, hey, let's buy a franchise and brand it and sell the TV rights. They, they are of the people. That's where they, their roots started. That's right. And so I, I look up so much to the, the few clubs in the world, like Barcelona, that really, uh, that, that, that really try and embrace their community still, um, you know, that are owned by or controlled by or, or sort of in service of. Um, I think Barcelona's... Uh, uh, phrase their sort of club motto of more than a club is um, is beautiful. I think that kind of expresses it, and uh, that spirit. If companies could take that, not just as kind of a beautiful thing to put on the wall, but actually as their guiding business premise, brand premise, um, would uh, would guide them pretty well. Mm. So if I was to repeat to you something that's been said to me on more than one occasion by people in sport, uh, purpose doesn't apply to sport. That's for CPG products and banks and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, what would you say to them? 
Well, I think that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of humans. You know, the, the, the understanding of humans that would be behind that is that um, humans are just these sort of simple creatures to consume, to consume content and to, you know, consume soap and whatnot. And, um, you know, to critique my old mindset, you know, as I said, I grew up believing the Chicago School of Economics. Um, the premise of the Chicago School of Economics and all of that era was that uh, humans just make rational decisions and we are just kind of rational beings that just kind of make the logical choice each, each, each moment that we're presented with um, an opportunity to select. Whereas, you know, what we know now, um, I think many people knew it then, but it's found, you know, been proven by science of people like Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for basically proving that economics is not a rational thing. Humans make most decisions emotionally. And if you believe that most humans make most decisions emotionally, then you have to believe that purpose is, uh, is fundamental to uh, to any any organization, whether it's for profit, non profit, um, uh, you know, any organization of humans has to be animated by a purpose, or it's missing its potential, because humans are emotionally driven creatures, and purpose is one of the most important ways of of curing emotion. So to think of purpose just as like a nice to have tack on veneer that. CPG companies have to use, but we don't, I think is, is just missing the point. Sebastian, it's been great talking to you as always. You started off by saying that you're a hopeful person. Um, what are you hopeful for the next phase of, uh, of society? Well, you know, I'm I, like going back to the origins of my story, like what my dad implanted in me was one, a sense of optimism and two, a sense of um, belief in business as a vehicle for, for positive um, creation. And um, I am still fundamentally optimistic that business can be. I think the awakening that is happening in business is exciting. I think you are seeing a generation now of leaders who are committing themselves and their organizations to something bigger than just driving shareholder returns. Um, and that to me gives me real optimism because when you have people creating more and more instances of incredibly valuable businesses based on uh, a base mission of, <clears throat> you know, coming from a, a core motivation in themselves that they then infuse a team with and animate a team around, and then animate customers around and build meaningful brands. That I think is how we get to really scaled social impact uh, really fast. And so that gives me, gives me real optimism. I think we are close to a tipping point where that becomes business as normal. Sebastian, thanks so much. Thank you, Neil. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport. How to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport. <laughs>